Hey, this is your host, Damien, with The Quantified Body. Quick thank you for a iTunes review. Today, it's from Miss Brandy1510. And she says, this is quickly becoming all I listen to. Digs a lot deeper than most podcasts. I regularly learn something completely new. As usual, thanks for the feedback. I love the detailed feedback. If you want to post your own review, give me some feedback too. It's very, very much appreciated. You can do that by going to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash iTunes. The ratings, the reviews all help us get this out to more people. So it's cool. Today's episode is a follow on from the episodes on ketosis and fasting that we've done. So basically using ketosis as a tool against cancer. So we looked at that with Dr. Thomas Seyfried in episode 16 and Gene Fine in episode 36. You definitely want to check those out for the context before you dive into this one, or maybe afterwards you could go and check those out and it would fill in the gaps for you. Today we're looking at a real life application of this, someone who has actually gone through this journey and used ketosis via a combination of ketogenic dieting and fasting as therapy for their brain tumor, for their cancer. This episode is also for those of you who don't have cancer or not really concerned about cancer, but are really interested in ketosis because today's guest has really gone through an a variety of extreme approaches to ensure he remained in a high state of ketosis. For him, his reasoning was that his life depended on it, of course, so it's very serious. So I'm sure you can take some of those tools to improve your ketosis if you're having trouble maintaining it and staying in it and so on. Today's guest is Andrew Scarborough. I met him at a conference where he spoke about his experience with ketosis and his brain tumor. The situation was that after being diagnosed with a type of malignant tumor named an anaplastic astrocytoma and undergoing the chemotherapy treatment, which was unsuccessful, he decided he would take it into his own hands and he would go the ketosis route to treating his cancer. And of course, this was based in no small part on Thomas Seyfried's work which we'll discuss in the episode. Fortunately, this has yielded very positive results for him and his tumor has shrunk. It's disappeared from scans and he has now been given the all clear. So big congrats to Andrew there. Now, there are a lot of details in this podcast. It's chock full of details on how Andrew went about this, how his journey was from the types of foods, the diet, the extreme measures he has taken, how he's been able to keep up physical activity, pretty much everything on his journey. And it includes things like eating bugs, uh, eating sheep's brains and quitting eating plant based foods altogether. So it's been an interesting journey for him also. Andrew is now also working with London-based hospitals and hopefully going to be helping with some clinical trials to provide more data on this potential approach to defeating cancer for others. There's going to be a lot in the show notes today, so if you haven't checked those out before, you really should. We put down in painstaking detail all of the tools, the tactics, and the biomarkers covered in the episode. And like I said, this one's really deep, so it'll be a really good kind of cheat sheet for you there. You can get all of that also in the newsletter every time an episode comes out by going to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter. Then you'll just automatically get it every time we put a new episode out. A quick word on the sponsorship experiment I'm currently doing. Would you like to sponsor the podcast or do you know someone who would like to sponsor the podcast and reach more people who are really interested in health, longevity, performance and all the quantified and health tech and all of that kind of stuff? If so, and you think you have something that would be potentially a good fit, please let them know or please let me know if you're interested and contact me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net 
or you can contact me also on Twitter. I'm at biohacks. Reach out to me there and let me know what you've got going. Great. Now let's dive straight into this interview with Andrew Scarborough and all these amazing details of his journey. The quantified body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Andrew, welcome so much to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, you have quite an amazing story that a lot of people are very interested in hearing about. It's always good to kind of get the context of how this happened to you and where it all started from you. So could you go into the beginning, how you made the discovery that you had this condition, how it started? Yes, well, I was studying a master's in nutritional therapy at the University of Westminster. This was before my diagnosis and I was suffering from migraine headaches for a good few months until suddenly I'd lost my speech in February 2013. So this was uh, nearly three years ago now. What I didn't know at the time was that was my first partial seizure. But then just being a man, I carried on. So to describe that, was it you had difficulty saying words or what exactly happened? Well, I went uh, very dizzy and then lost my speech completely for about five minutes, five, six minutes. And I was with a friend and we kind of laughed about it because it was just a bit strange. Uh, But it was just because it was quite a cold day. It was February. I was just thinking, you know, when you get cold and you kind of shiver and you just kind of stutter and lose your like you struggle to speak but uh, it was a lot more serious than that I didn't do anything about it and then a couple of months later I was experiencing very similar symptoms with pins and needles in my tongue and throat to cut a long story short I went on a train after a heavy gym workout and I felt like I actually had a lot of energy after the workout, even though I really struggled through it, just from, I just felt completely wiped out, even though it wasn't the most difficult workout. But yeah, I suffered more seizure activity afterwards when I was getting on a train, very busy train actually, in London uh, to go home. And I devastatingly crushing headache, uh, just like Someone had, uh, like my head was in a nutcracker and it was, the pressure was constantly building up. Then I'd suffered a quite a traumatic uh, brain hemorrhage uh, and grand mal seizure on the train, which wasn't too pleasant. And the whole train stopped. I was rushed to hospital and there was so much blood on my brain that they didn't know what to say, what actually was the cause. I was continually, as I was in hospital, not knowing, feeling very confused, not able to speak or walk at this point. I was given a a CT scan and all that was shown was just this massive blood in my brain and it looked like an explosion had gone off. I was still experiencing just horrific grand mal seizures at this time. So I was just having things explained to me and at the time they just 
were going in one ear and out the other because I was so out of it. And that was quite a tough time for my family. And uh, my first diagnosis was an AVM, which is an arteriovenous malformation, because it just looked so poor on the, on the scans. Because CT scans are quite, uh, quite ambiguous. All you could really see was just uh, a tangle of blood vessels and uh, arteries. Uh. So they thought it was an artery that had grown the wrong way or you'd been born? They just saw it as being um, an unusual tangle of mess. <laughs> okay, of arteries grown in the wrong way. Yeah, okay. and uh, then they said, uh, oh no, it's probably not that. It's, it's probably a cavernous hemangioma instead, which is a tangle of abnormal blood vessels, so not the tangle of, not tangled in the arteries, which is better because <laughs> kind of it's a bit less life-threatening. But I was given a number of misdiagnoses before I eventually had an operation because I was continually having these grand mal seizures that were starting to cause me cognitive difficulties and my speech was getting worse. So I wasn't able to speak at all at this stage. So when you going back to the hemorrhage, is that a stroke? Is it the same as a stroke or is it slightly different? It's very similar to a stroke. It was just caused by the pressure of the tumor pushing against the side of my skull. And also it was in the between the speech and movement area in the motor invading into the motor cortex. That's why I'd lost my speech completely. And I had an operation not long after in May, uh, May 2013 to try and remove as much as possible of this very vascular invasive tumor, which was slightly larger than the size of a golf ball, but invading into the motor cortex area of my brain. So uh, they couldn't remove all of it because otherwise I would be completely paralyzed or dead. Because I was misdiagnosed, I actually had, I should have had the operation awake, but I had, um, well, I was unconscious during it. The neurosurgeon said after, yeah, we probably, if he if he was to do it again, he would have had it uh, awake so that he could get he could potentially get more out of it, but he couldn't remove all of it because of where it was in the brain. That's interesting. What is the difference between you being unconscious and awake? Are they able to get some feedback from you, or? Yeah, so you're kept awake so that they can monitor your responses while they're poking around in there to see. Uh, what can be <laughs> removed and what can't, uh, what's healthy brain tissue and what isn't, because it's very difficult to tell in the brain. That's one of the main issues with uh, brain surgeries. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to distinguish what's healthy tissue and what's uh, the tumours. So this is what date now that you've been, you've had your surgery and you've been given a, a clear diagnosis? At this point now, it's uh, two and a half years coming up to three. Okay, so it was a few months after your first, uh, your hemorrhage. That was uh, two months after that I'd had the operation because they didn't know what to do with me uh, because it was so, there was just a lot of blood in my brain. And if you think about uh, a malignant brain tumor, it's not a great thing if you've got a constant blood supply there. And it's not a fantastic thing if you've had uh, this thing that looks like an explosion in the brain scattering around the cells and the <laughs> blood everywhere. So it just makes it more uh, migratory, I guess, if that's a word, and <laughs> just uh, more likely to spread into other areas, which isn't ideal. So 
I then had my pathology finally, and uh, it showed that the tumor was indeed extremely vascular, and uh, there was still some significant scar tissue, as well as some slight enhancement there. But we didn't know exactly what that was. So are you saying, is that a scan? Yes, sorry, this okay. was the MRI scan MRI? after my operation. Yes, this was just a standard MRI, but I also had my pathology report from my the bit the the amount of tumor that was able to be removed, and that came back as an anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a, a grade three astrocytoma, so affecting affecting the the glial cells, the the astrocytes in the brain, and they're quite important uh, <laughs> components of the brain. So it's not a great thing to have. Uh, particularly uh, high-grade glioma, which is what mine was. Brain tumors come in different gradings. So it's kind of like with staging, how with the brain, it's uh, grades three and four are, are highly malignant, and grades one and two are, are slow-growing. Grade one is typically like a, a solid mass that you can, if you can operate, it can be curable. But um, even grade twos are known to come back and, and do grow, but grow at a slower rate. But grade three and four are the fastest growing. They grow quite fast. And mine was shown to be heterogeneous. So it had quite a few grade three cells in there. Um, Does that mean it has different types of cancer cells there when you say heterogeneous? Well, yeah, it, it showed numerous mutations. It's very difficult to explain, but it showed that it wouldn't be chemosensitive. So... It was negative for IDH1, which is a predictor of uh, longer survival and chemosensitivity. And it was also unmethylated for MGMT, which it's a repair gene. And that's also, it's not a good thing that it was unmethylated. So it's one of these gene mutations that they say is good to have for longer term survival. I also had tumor suppressor genes missing, which again, with these grade three tumors, the time scale for survival is, is variable until it comes back. But in my case, I had just about the worst uh, <laughs> scenario in terms of the pathology. So did they give you a rough timeline, I guess, at that point? Uh, they said it, it was difficult to tell just because of my age and because of the location of the tumor. But uh, it could have been... Typically in that in that scenario, in that particular scenario, it's about it's around two years when it comes back. And that's kind of the best, uh, the best case in that particular scenario. So it's a strange type of tumor because in a different scenario with different kind of pathology, it can be up to five years or sometimes seven that it comes back. But it's, it's quite variable. But in my case, it didn't look so good. And I still had some scar tissue where there was lots of healthy blood supply that uh, could have fed any enhancement that was present at the time so not great <laughs> great must have been a shock must have been a pretty big shock for you when that all came about yeah most definitely and uh, I was told that even though my tumor was not chemosensitive that I should probably go ahead and have chemotherapy and radiotherapy which I did for a short period because I was quite ignorant about it. I thought that it would potentially give me a bit more time. 
But then once I'd looked into it, I realised that uh, it was only going to cause further mutations for me personally, and I didn't want to pursue that. So I started to lower my carbohydrate intake and go on a, a restricted ketogenic diet after I'd learned about it prior to my diagnosis when I was studying a master's in nutritional therapy. Right. So let's take a step back. What was your lifestyle like before this all happened to you? And just because we kind of miss this detail, how old were you when this happened? 28, 27, 28. <laughs> it's difficult now thinking back because it's uh, my birthday is a September one. So I was 27 going on 28. Uh, just trying to do simple maths in my head. It was two and a half years ago and I'm 30 now. So so roughly 28 or 27? Yeah, I was on a diet that I thought was healthy. So I was on a, a low fat, high carb with the complex carbs diet, uh, all whole foods. So I thought I was doing a good job, no processed food. And I actually had quite a low body fat percentage and quite a high lean body mass percentage. So I uh, thought I was very healthy and I was very athletic. Uh, I'd worked as a personal trainer for a few years. Yeah, I was studying my master's in nutritional therapy and it was a shock to me that I was learning that uh, my undergraduate degree in nutrition was completely useless because I was learning all this new information that contradicted all the old information. But that was when I was just learning out about it. So I thought it was interesting, but it seemed to go against most of what I'd studied for the past few years before that. So I thought I was healthy. So uh, when they gave you the diagnosis for the cancer, people at home are probably thinking, well, is this one of these yeah, metastasized? Is it one that had the potential to do that or won't do that? So it'll spread to other parts of your body or does it tend to stay concentrated? Yeah, well, primary brain tumors typically just spread into the brain apart from med which isn't great because your brain's very useful apart from uh, medulloblastoma which can spread down the spinal fluid and into the central nervous system uh, so it's a, it's a central nervous system that can spread down the spine and other also spread into the brain so mine was uh, an astrocytoma so it would have just uh, spread into the brain more and uh, there can also be secondary tumors that come about as a response in the brain. It's not a great type of tumor to have. <laughs> no tumors are good ones to have, but it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the <laughs> no. nastier ones. It's the step down from glioblastoma, which is the most common type of brain cancer. That's always the worst, is the type four. Yeah. I uh, thought with my approach, with my treatment strategy, my own treatment, tra treatment strategy, is that I thought, well, I have a little bit more time to play around with things and adjust to strict ketogenic diet than I would if I had a glioblastoma. So if I had a glioblastoma, I would have pushed things a lot quicker. But I, I kind of did push things quite a lot. Uh, I go to extremes with this diet and this approach. So. Yeah, and let's, so let's jump into that. So did you consider any other options? You said you took a little bit of chemo and radiotherapy, radiation, and pretty quickly you stopped that was it a couple of months or something i stopped after after four months because uh i was proposed to have it for up to two years which is a long time and yeah i'd said no after after just a few months of experiencing how horrible it was and still having these horrible seizures i just thought well my i want my quality of life to be good at least 
So yeah, I just stopped it. And uh, because my scans were still showing this enhancement, I thought, well, we don't know if that's necrotic tissue or scar tissue or if it's tumor uh, enhance if it's from the tumor if it's tumor activity. But I thought that because my tumor looked so glowing on the scan, that it was potentially very responsive to carbohydrate restriction. So you do get some cancers that seem to use more glucose for energy, and you get some that actually use glutamine more for energy than glucose. And more or less, they use both for energy. But because mine was so glowing, glowing up like a lighting up like a Christmas tree, I like to say, it, it showed that it was potentially more more efficacious to just really cut down on the glucose and see what was going to happen from that. So these were all MRIs they were giving you? Yeah, and interestingly, even though it's different from other cancers where you get a PET scan, you can uh, you can still see you can still see the enhancement there on an MRI. So uh, that was interesting to me. Do you know why that was? We spoke recently to Gene Fine, who was talking about the the PET scan in use of cancers. So uh, do you know why you were able to see it quite clearly on the MRI in your case? Is that specific to brain cancers or? Yeah, I, th- I think from what I've seen in the in the literature, it is. I don't know exactly why that is. I guess it's just you're able to see the metabolic activity, even with um, the, I think it's an iodine solution, like not the, the good kind, <laughs> the more radioactive iodine that they give you than the supplemental iodine you can get, which is actually really good uh, for hormonal control in certain cancers. But that's going off on a tangent. But So you're talking about they give you an IV of that when you go into the MRI so they can see more? Yeah, that's the uh, contrast. Uh, injection that they give you so sometimes i know for pet scans they do give you the and that that shows up but with with this you it just shows up quite nicely with uh, the contrast dye and uh, i've I, i've my scans straight after i see them so straight after i have them so it's it's interesting to view that yeah yeah so i think it's gadolinium is that the contrast dye you're talking about uh that's one of them but um I don't have that one for my scans. I have something else. I remember exactly what it's called, but I've had a few different kinds of scans. I've also had MRI spectroscopy, which is a fascinating type of scan that it works with light, allowing you to see the microenvironment in the brain. And we're looking at how the ketogenic diet is changing that environment within the, those biomarkers within the brain as I'm progressing. And that's really interesting to see. Yeah, so great. So what kind of scans have you been having over time and how frequently and how have you seen the ketogenic diet impact that over time? Well, initially I had uh, just standard MRI scans, which were quite boring. And uh, (laughs) the cancer hospital that I was at wasn't the best for brain cancer, even though it's world-renowned for other cancers. So at that time, I had the enhancement showing and significant scar tissue, and just I had hemisiderin, which is uh, blood staining. There was quite a lot of that showing on my scan. Since then, I've had progression in a way that I've been I've been given a statement saying that I have a response saying that I've achieved complete remission 
and the enhancement is no longer present. I've also had significant healing of the scar tissue and I've had vast improvement of my symptoms. So I am completely off medication for the epilepsy, which I was told by five different neurologists that I'd be crazy to even reduce the medication and I should increase it because my seizure activity was so bad. Yeah, I've just had uh, a linear progression of improvement in, in that respect. So I'm completely off, off medication for the epilepsy. And for that, I do a number of things which controls my seizure activity. And if I forget to do those things, I instantly have seizures. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's like that being on a tightrope, you have to keep up with doing all these things. I haven't had a seizure in a long time, but when I start to stop doing these things or I slip up even a little bit, I get uh, an aura, which is a warning for me that I'm going to have a seizure. And then I have emergency measures to reverse that, which I've devised myself largely. So it's interesting. Yeah, that's Sounds very interesting. We'll jump into that. So the epilepsy is a symptom. It's it's driven by the hemorrhage that you had and some damage. Yeah, and and also also it can it can provide a useful indicator of where you are with the cancer with the brain, uh, particular with temporal lobe uh, epilepsy, which is a typical response from a, a temporal lobe uh, brain tumor. So. My tumor was between the temporal and frontal lobe, so I have three different types of seizures, which uh, is fun. <laughs> and uh, just monitoring my symptoms and my seizure triggers and my uh, theories on what would resolve the seizures, not just the ketogenic diet, but things I could do with the ketogenic diet to optimize it specifically for brain cancer management. I was able to work out what worked most effectively for me personally and relate that to the literature as well. So I was then able to go to my neurologists and say, well, what do you think of this? And then when they said, I think it's absolutely ridiculous and there's no science behind it, I was able to show them the science behind it and my results. And then they could say, well, that's very interesting. <laughs> so um, now they think I'm very interested <laughs> because uh, I've had success that they didn't expect. That's great. So when were you given the sign-off? They say that the moment of sign-off when they said, okay, your scans are clear. So I don't think they, do they say it's in remission or do they say it's clear? What's the... With that kind of cancer, it's never deemed as curable, and I don't think it can be curable. But my personally, I think you can achieve. I think you can achieve and maintain complete remission and have it and maintain that status indefinitely. So I know from from close observation of the animal studies that when they come off the diet after they've achieved complete remission, same kinds of cancers that it, it comes back uh, almost instantaneously. And uh, the unpublished human studies, I know the same thing. So the same thing is uh, occurring. So I am very keen to stay on this very strict ketogenic diet and I actually feel quite good on it. So uh, internally, when I have my blood tests, uh, which I have 
a myriad of different blood tests just to see how I'm doing in terms of my general health and a number of markers for uh, potential tumor progression is that internally I'm actually much healthier than before I had cancer, which is very, <laughs> I, f I find that kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> so what kind of, what kind of improvements have you seen? What are the biomarkers that stand out for you? The test results that have come back and been useful? Yeah, well, the first thing I looked at was my vitamin D. And that was when I was first diagnosed, it was in the severely deficient range. And now it's in the suboptimal <laughs> range so it's actually they, people would say it's too high now it's 200 and previously it was 20 so <laughs> there's that reading and i also have my uh, triglycerides tested so i have my cholesterol done and all those fun markers i have a full blood count my white blood cell count is pretty good i can't remember the exact figures but it's uh, actually better than before I had cancer, which is not typical. Usually, even years after you've had cancer, it can be your uh, immunity can be compromised. So your white blood cell count is typically quite low. And I found that quite interesting. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear about the progression. Let's talk about the actual things that you've done in terms of where you started in your ketogenic diet and exactly the, because I know people say they're ketogenic and have you been tracking your blood ketones and blood glucose since the start? And have you seen how that's changed as you've changed your diet? Yeah. So the first thing I did was I went out and got a glucometer to measure my blood ketones and blood glucose. And I was comparing that to book cancer as a metabolic disease and the glucose ketone index that uh, Thomas Seyfried kind of uh, devised and came up with with his colleagues and I had a number of conversations with him about it just over email and I was amazed that he actually got back to me. I found it very interesting. I started with trying to do the fast uh, to, uh, fast to start with to get me in ketosis very quickly but I realized with epilepsy that's not a great idea and I had quite a, bad, a few bad breakthrough seizures attempting that so I decided not to try it that way so I decided to do it gradually and over time I managed to get into the therapeutic range within just a few weeks when you say therapeutic range, what is that? So I was using the glucose ketone index, which is you use a ratio where you divide your blood ketones by the blood glucose and you come up with a number and you try and make sure that number is, I think it's above one. I don't measure it anymore in that, in that way because I'm consistently in very deep ketosis with very low blood glucose, so I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah, we, so we actually covered the index with uh, Thomas Seafried before. So I think it's uh, glucose divided by ketones. And there's a couple of other little things you have to do in there. It's not super straightforward because I, I put a spreadsheet up for, for some people who are asking. When he was talking to us, he said it was under one. So I guess that's what you were aiming for. And you seem to be saying you've gone... Yeah, at the time, that's what I was aiming for. But now I'm consistently above 3.5. So I don't have to worry about that so much. Oh, in the glucose ketone index? Uh, well, my my ketones are typically above 3.5. 
Oh, and, right. And the uh, blood glucose is typically hovering around 3.5. So it's kind of at the very least a one-to-one. Okay. So just for people at home, because in the US, the, the blood glucose measurement isn't millimolar. So you're talking around in between 54 and 72 milligrams deciliter, that you, like three to four millimolar. So I'm guessing that you're hovering often around the, with a safe read index somewhere around 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8, yeah. somewhere around there. So it's well below one, that's what you're saying, because your ketones are so high. Yeah, and in the evenings it goes uh, sky high. So, <laughs> Well, the ketones go sky high and the glucose goes really low. So, Do you mean like from five o'clock onwards or six o'clock? It's interesting because I saw that in some of my fasts and also some of my earlier experiments also. Yeah, I guess it's a hormonal thing that happens. And also because... There's that period of time where I only have typically two meals a day. So that's kind of the in-between period, I guess, where it goes that high. So that's where I've unintentionally fasted for that period of time, even though the diet's mimicking fasting itself. So So what does a typical day look like? What are you doing now? What does your typical day look like? I'm assuming at the moment you've kind of got to the most extreme version of your own program for this. Is that correct? Yeah, so typically I have 85% fat and 15% protein in my diet. But over the last few days, I've experimented with 90% fat and 10% protein and negligible carbs. So typically on my 85% and 15% protocol that I follow, which is very similar to the animal studies and quite similar to very strict ketogenic diets for children with epilepsy. I restrict my carb- my calorie intake to uh, 1,600 calories typically. So calorie restriction is extremely important for uh, brain cancer management. You've probably discussed that with uh, other people, I'm guessing. What's also important, I think, is the other things that I'm doing. So personally, I think it's very important to make sure you have correct therapeutic ratio I like to call it of omega-3 and 6 in the blood and I have a home testing kit for that which I send off to a lab every few months. Okay interesting is that a dry spot test or? Yeah it is you just kind of have two areas to collect uh, quite a significant amount of blood and then it it gives you a a report back just saying uh, what your ratios of omega-3 and 6 are in your blood. Which lab are you using for that? Well, the testing kit is by, uh, if you go on uh, omegasense.com, it, it comes up. And uh, I just get that from the, there's a, a center called the Nutri Center in London, and uh, I just get it from there. It's a pretty good test, pretty accurate. So have you seen that change? This is uh, actually the current levels, right? So it's not like it's your diet of the day, like we're talking about the blood glucose and and the ketones, which are changing all the time. It's a more stable marker, which is evolving over time. So you're shooting for a range you want to keep it within. Well, I'm just trying to get as close to a one-to-one ratio as possible. And I've actually experimented with a a two-to-one and a three-to-one ratio in favor of omega-3, which uh, is quite hard to do, but it's very interesting. We know that um, omega-3 fatty acids exhibit neuroprotective properties and uh, can represent a potential treatment for a variety of neurodegenerative diseases. So it's really interesting. We know that they are shown to be cytotoxic to tumor cells themselves. So 
ideally an optimal ketogenic diet for brain cancer should have, in my view, a better ratio of omega-3 and 6. Uh, I think the standard ketogenic diets that are applied to humans at the moment are way too high in omega-6, which is inflammatory. And I struggled when I was doing a standard ketogenic diet because of that. So what are you taking in order to raise your omega-3 levels? What are you doing in, in diet specifically? Well, initially I was eating lots of brains because they're the best source of omega-3 that you get. Uh-huh. Okay. And that's high in DHA. And one of the main fatty acids in the brain is DHA. So the brain is 70% fat and, uh, well, at least 70% fat and the rest is mostly water. So it just makes it makes sense to me to have in my diet, mostly fat and water. So that was my main reason for doing that. And uh, we also know that the fatty acid composition of gliomas differs from that found in non-malignant brain tissue quite significantly. So the reduction of glioma DHA content is really interesting to view that. We know that uh, in gliomas, which is what my tumor was and what a glioblastoma is as well. We know that uh, that they have significantly less DHA in and around them. So if we if we can increase that, it can. The literature shows us that um, it can have a very potent effect, particularly when on a ketogenic diet in uh, shrinking these tumors. That's, that's great. So you are still eating brains today? Is this a like a large part of your diet? And what types of brains? <laughs> <laughs> I was eating lamb's brains, but unfortunately I've stopped eating them because of the very, very low risk of uh, scrapie, which is kind of like uh, CJD, uh, mad cow disease, but the lamb form. Even though it's a very small risk and you'd probably have that same risk if you were to eat any infected tissue of that same animal, I just thought it would be a good idea to avoid it, which is a shame because it's my favorite type of food on the ketogenic diet and it's a perfect ketogenic food. But my second most therapeutic ketogenic food that I've found is sweetbreads, which is the, the pancreas and the thymus gland of, uh, in my case, I, I get them from lambs again. So if you actually, I've done an experiment, which is on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, so if you just look at Andrew Scarborough and look at um, my sweetbreads experiment, I'm testing the myoglobin of sweetbreads and it comes up very high on the glucometer for ketones. And uh, when I test my blood after my postprandial blood glucose and my blood ketones after eating the sweetbreads, I find that my ketones shoot up very high and the blood glucose stays more or less the same as before I started eating. So it's really... That's interesting. Out of interest, how much do sweetbreads cost? Are they relatively cheap or expensive? Uh, well, I mostly get them for free. Sometimes I have to pay like a pound for them. <laughs> okay, so they're very cheap. Yeah, because no yeah. one wants them. Right, right. That's what I was thinking. They're, they're incredibly nutrient-dense. They're rich in trace minerals such as zinc and selenium, and they're rich in protein and omega-3 fatty acids. So... Like like brain and like oily fish, they're a great source of omega-3. And they also raise ketones very high. Yeah, that's really surprising. I don't know if you've heard a new, new supplement ranges, which I've been playing around with, exogenous ketones. Yeah, I take those as well. well I take Ketoforce mostly when I 
try and do exercise because exercise is a huge seizure trigger for me. So yeah, I, I, I play around with that. Well, it, it sounds like the sweetbreads are more effective than the keto force and the keto kenner and the, the other uh, the other ones. Yeah, well, I actually made a supplement of the kind of sludgy juice that the <laughs> sweetbreads come in because I have them completely fresh uh, straight from... <laughs> after the animals been uh, slaughtered so well not straight after but not long after because uh, they have to do a number of things just to make sure they're safe to eat i guess yeah i made a supplement out of that and tested it and uh, it was very interesting the results but it tasted absolutely foul so <laughs> is that the downside of sweetbreads like they're really awesome except they taste bad yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> they're cool. not the best tasting you kind of have to boil them for a long period of time but they're uh, very nutrient dense and very very effective so how do you eat them i don't know if you've got a quick rep- recipe for people at home they're like oh it sounds like a great thing <laughs> to try out but if they taste horrible is there some way to mask it well the best thing to do is uh boil them for about an hour uh that's actually a short period of time typically for sweetbreads normally it's a lot longer and then if you add tarragon to it, it actually complements the flavor and it actually tastes a lot nicer so that's one of the things I do. It goes very well with tarragon. And I just consume every bit of the animal and I don't have any carbohydrates. So that's how I get around possible nutrient deficiencies from not having any fruits and vegetables. And it allows me to not count carbohydrate. So it's kind of like a, it's a paleo ketogenic diet. It's a pure meat diet, diet right? That's how you, you're basically a pure carnivore. Meat and fish and fat. And that's it. I do know there's a little bit story behind the reason, because at first you were on a ketogenic diet and you were doing more of a straightforward one with the, the coconut oil and all of these kind of things. What happened? Well, I noticed that uh, with certain people who have certain types of brain injury, your brain can be more sensitive to salicylates, which are found in coconut oil, various vegetables, especially one various vegetables and fruits, uh, especially ones that have uh, seeds. So I wasn't able to have avocados or any of the staple ketogenic foods that you have. I also couldn't have dairy because I had a reaction to that and I wouldn't advise dairy dairy anyway on a ketogenic diet for anyone with cancer, let alone brain cancer, because of uh, IGF-1. And uh, it just doesn't make sense to me that there's so many ketogenic diets that are for cancer management that are being based around dairy. Right. There's a lot of cheese, right? Cheese is pushed quite hard. Yeah. Lots of cheese and double cream, and it's just not efficacious for me, even though I'm astounded that they get any results uh, with, with these trials. And, and they do get some results, so that, that's encouraging for me on my, what I would call a more, a more beneficial and effective ketogenic diet for this circumstance. Yeah. Could you explain quickly the, the IGF, because I'm, I'm sure there's people at home that aren't quite up to speed on the IGF-1 and, and the dairy aspect of it. What's the problem there? Yeah, so that it activates uh, insulin-like growth factor, and that can cause cancer cells to proliferate faster. So one of the ways I get around that is I used to eat lots of butter, but because it's more insulogenic and because it has milk proteins and casein, uh, what I do is I have ghee, which is 
clarified butter so the milk solids in the casein have been removed and it's much less insulogenic and I actually get much better blood ketone readings as a result as well compared to butter. I find that interesting in itself and we also know that compared to coconut oil, ghee has uh, much more omega-3 fatty acids and uh, coconut oil only has omega-6 so if you're basing a ketogenic diet around just loads and loads of coconut oil and which is just omega-6 and loads of even even though coconut oil is fantastic for achieving ketosis and I would advise it in moderate amounts if you can tolerate it because it's really good I would say that having making sure that you have enough omega-3 by having more animal fats is is more beneficial in terms of overall nutrient profile than just consuming tons of coconut oil right you mentioned you eat all the parts of the animal. I'm guessing you mean like all of the organs. Yeah. Do you consume what you would call a, a variety of these? Do you try to cycle them and have as wide a spectrum as possible? So what other organs are you are you eating? Are you literally eating all of the different organs on a rotation each week? Yeah, literally everything, but mostly heart, because heart is very, very cheap. It only costs me 60p at a time, and you get... Uh, quite a substantial portion. So I will eat it because lamb hearts are quite fatty. There's a huge chunk of fat on them. I can just eat them as they are and I don't need to add extra fat. It's a fantastic source of iron, zinc, selenium, B vitamins, uh, folate, and it's the best food source of uh, coenzyme Q10. So it's funny how people pay an absolute fortune to get pills that have, have a coenzyme Q10 and uh, I just get the best source that you can possibly get for uh, 60p at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's a psychological barrier about the taste and it's just what we've become used to really, I feel like it. I'm eating more. I'm definitely nowhere near as far as you. I've been eating more organ meats and I'm trying to push it up. I just made another order today from a new company actually. But yeah, I'm slowly building my way up and it's a taste I'm struggling with. So recipes, I think help with that learning how to cook and, and deal with the different tastes and just getting used to them yeah i actually did quite uh well to start with brains because they're actually the most tolerable in terms of taste because they just taste like creamy eggs oh that's how i would have never thought that <laughs> <laughs> yeah they just taste like creamy salty eggs you just don't look at them while you're, while you're eating them <laughs> <laughs> no and a number of things i do uh just for entertainment uh to keep the diet interesting and uh, to make sure I have enough trace minerals. So that's why I added uh, insects to my diet quite early on, uh, because any time you eat the whole animal, you're getting a variety of nutrients. So when you eat insects, you're consuming the whole animal. It just makes sense that it would be a, a beneficial thing to have. So how do you consume those? Because I know there are, like, there are bars, there are, there are um, cricket bars out there in the US. How are you consuming insects? Yeah, so what I do is I get the fattiest insects that are ketogenic. So I get wax worms and super worms and uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly insects that reptiles eat. So I get them from a, a pet shop that sells them for reptiles now. I used to get them online. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> and Okay, did you used to buy from Bug Grub? Yeah. Was that the specific brand was that the only place you bought from yeah that was the only one well no i tried a few i tried the 
silkworm pupae as well. So a few different insect flowers that have different medicinal properties that are in Chinese medicine. And uh, they're really interesting in terms of the properties that they have, but we kind of largely ignore that. But mainly what I do now is I get them from a pet shop <laughs> and I just stick them in the freezer to kill them. Oh, man. And then I just <laughs> give them a gentle wash and eat them. Or what I'll do... Straight or yeah. just, just eating them uh, straight? They're more, wow. The problem with if you get them online is that they've been dehydrated and, and cooked so much that the nutrient profile isn't as good as if you have them fresh. So after they've been wriggling about... <laughs> For a bit and i also grind them up and make my own flour after i've frozen them and that goes that makes quite nice breads so i make a, a zero carb ketogenic bread which is very useful and uh, people actually think it's proper bread so i've had it you don't tell them right <laughs> no I've yeah i've actually offered it to people and uh, without telling them and they they quite like it and then i tell them what it is and they want to punch me but they, they, they say it's actually they say it's actually surprisingly quite nice quick story here like I, I was in mexico 15 years ago and i went to uh tesco anyway it's you go up into the mountains into uh this uh, old old city and they were selling plastic bags full of uh, live insects for eating it's something that we used to do we don't do in modern society and if you look at uh, anthropology and uh, how we evolved it's largely ignored, especially with these paleo diets, how we evolved primarily eating a variety of insects and in quite, uh, quite a large amount. So it's suggested that the man would go out and only and go hunting and uh, would only have about a 20% success rate actually catching these larger animals. And the, the woman would actually be in mainly collecting insects for food. And seasonally, they would collect uh, nuts and berries, but it's a fact in just anthrop anthropological studies that we did consume a large amount of insects before we moved closer to the coast to eat fish, and that's how our brains developed more. So, yeah, it's an ignored uh, ignored fact. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. We'll get there. There'll be people writing books, maybe you, <laughs> about the missing the missing parts of the paleo diet, <laughs> paleo upgraded or something. So you did mention that when you exercise, you're taking exogenous ketones because you need to, given epilepsy. Why, why is that? Uh, well, when I exercise, my blood ketones go down lower than my uh, individual therapeutic ratio. So... Well, not ratio, but my individual therapeutic reading for seizure control for me personally. So I have to do that. And I also have to take an experimental, another experimental treatment of mine, which has proved effective, which I learned from the literature on epilepsy. And uh, it's a magnesium chloride solution that I mix into water. And uh, I have a specific amount that actually reverses auras so i explained that an aura for me is uh, an aura for someone with epilepsy is when you have all the symptoms that you're about to have a more serious type of seizure so an aura is a partial seizure in itself okay maybe you would lose your words a little bit or how's it how well, does it work i would get uh 
pins and needles in my mouth and throat and I would feel very dizzy and faint and uh, just have this horrible feeling uh, like I'm going to start, I'm going to collapse and uh, have a, a tonic-clonic seizure. So when I take the magnesium solution that I take three times a day, it actually reverses that aura and is, is a potent preventative measure that I've found uh, to control seizure activity extremely effectively because uh, we know that in people with any kind of epilepsy, the levels of magnesium drop very low and there's certain types of the day that magnesium is at its lowest and typically that's when seizure threshold is also at its lowest. So if we can control that, we can, we can control seizures very effectively. Also, on a ketogenic diet, supplemental magnesium, particularly magnesium chloride I've found most effective, is uh, it acts as a natural statin. So it uh, has a, a beneficial effect on uh, not only cholesterol in the natural way, so not like a, a, a typical statin where it's actually destroying that process. It's, it's working with your body to do it naturally. And I find that it also controls blood glucose. It regulates blood glucose very effectively too. So I see it as my replacement for my medication that I was on previously. And the, the medication, interestingly, actually causes magnesium deficiency as well as calcium deficiency and deficiency in vitamin B12 and vitamin D. So, Which medication were you on for the people at home? I was on the maximum dose of Veteracetam, which the brand name is Kepra, and sodium valparate, the brand name for that is Eplum. So I was on both of those and the highest possible amount you could be on. You can imagine the side effects of that and the, the nutrient deficiencies that that caused were just quite substantial. And when you're, when you're withdrawing from those drugs, uh, you actually can get breakthrough seizures if you don't address those nutritional deficiencies and those seizures can actually cause SUDEP which is it's shorthand for sudden unexpected death in epilepsy and I was told consistently that I was highly likely to have that if I was to not only just come off my medication which is what I eventually did but reduce the medication so I had to reduce that medication over a period of almost two years and uh I had to do it very slowly and uh, add in these uh, these nutrients uh, and trace elements so that I was not having these breakthrough seizures that were life-threatening. So, uh, yeah, it's, it was a difficult balance, but I achieved it. Yeah, it makes it easier when you titrate down slowly, but you still, you've been courageous in pushing for all of these things when you're getting this pushback, which is saying it's really dangerous. So just in terms of the exercise, how do you bump your ketones up with the, is it the keto force? Yeah. So I consume that throughout my workout, but I tend to mostly just do quite light body weight exercise because I don't want to stress my body too much. And, uh, it's recommended, uh, Thomas Seafried himself recommends that cancer patients don't push themselves too much with exercise because it just, it just puts too much stress on the body, I guess, and on the brain. Um, so mostly I just 
go for long walks in uh, an area with lots of oxygen. And uh, I'm actually going to start having hyperbaric oxygen therapy fairly soon. I'm in discussions with a number of facilities about that, and I'm going to start doing case studies on patients. I'm actually working part-time at the moment uh, with Imperial College London and Charing Cross Hospital to start up clinical trials hopefully next year uh, with brain cancer patients using what I would call an optimal ketogenic diet. So we're looking at magnesium for these brain cancer patients. We're looking at the omega-3 and 6 ratio in the blood. We're looking at C-reactive protein as a marker for a systemic inflammation. And we're able to measure that over a period of time to see how that changes while on a ketogenic diet. So with cancer, is, is that typically high, the HSCRP, because of the inflammation? Or is that just a... Yeah, it, it's typically higher than, than normal. But uh, one of the main ideas of measuring that is to have a marker that you can measure over time. So I'm a huge fan of testing. And uh, I know that even if it, these things have no effect on the cancer, they have an effect on the epilepsy and blood glucose management. So we know that these are prognostic factors and they are also effective at managing epilepsy, which many brain cancer patients have as a result. So I'm very keen to start uh, doing this in patients more and uh, I'm working very hard to do that. It's very exciting that you're able to work in the hospitals and so on. So this is starting up next year, you said, potentially? Yes. And uh, it will also be featured in uh, New Scientist magazine next year, early next year. So my, my story and my approach will be, will be featured. And that, that's very exciting as well because it's getting the message out there. And we can then have, have actual data on, on humans, which is missing. And it will be, as I said before, it will be efficacious. So we'll be able to not just translate the diets that are being used for children with epilepsy, which I don't believe are... As good as they could be? As a, I, I don't think they're translatable uh, oh, for okay. brain cancer patients right. because I think it's just very different. For example, when I was on the standard type of ketogenic diet that did include those ingredients, I, de I developed symptoms that were uh, similar to temporal arteritis, where my temporal arteries became so inflamed that I nearly went blind and I was prescribed steroids for it. But instead of taking the steroids, what I did is I looked at my um, how much omega-6 I was taking in in my diet. And even though my blood glucose and ketones looked fantastic and the ketogenic diet is anti-inflammatory in itself, I was having these, and, uh, these inflammatory responses uh, which were only controlled and reversed uh, when I had readdressed the balance of the omega-3 uh, to 6 ratio. So... Uh, it, that that in itself is quite pow a powerful. Interesting. Where did your omega six ratio start? We read uh, studies where the standard American diet, for example, is you can get ratios of twenty to one, ten to one. So you know, quite far off. Well, I've I've read up to forty to one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, uh, so 
were you not so bad? Because you said you had a reasonably or you were trying to have a reasonably healthy diet before. So I wouldn't expect you to have the sad numbers. Yeah. So prior to initiation of the diet, I would say I was most likely about a, yeah, probably about a 10 to 1 ratio. But uh, on the ketogenic diet is probably quite similar, actually, because it wasn't, it was just including lots of, lots of nuts, lots of coconut oil, coconut milk, coconut cream, <laughs> lots of vegetables that were high in omega-6. I just thought it could be done better. Uh, so then then I transferred on to what I like to call a, a fishogenic diet. So <laughs> I was just consuming a lot more fish and I, I felt instantly much better. And then as I just cut down on the vegetables and cut them out completely, I had an instant response where I can't even remember the last time I had a headache now, even a mild headache. That's great. Great to hear. I'm conscious of your time. I know that you're really busy currently, but I there's a couple of things I do want to make sure we, we cover before you go. We didn't speak about glutamine, and I know that's an important part. You mentioned it uh, up front. That's something you had to restrict quite sharply, but how did you do that practically? Well, the first thing I did was limit protein quite significantly. And I did a number of therapeutic fasts. And it wasn't until then that I actually saw the greatest response on my MRI scans in terms of the complete remission. And one of the other things that's quite effective is with the magnesium. It has an effect on that as well. I need to find the study for that, but I can send it to you if you're interested in reading it. Another thing that I'm actually looking into for... Uh, in for the long term is metformin because metformin on a ketogenic diet has quite a potent effect so it has a number of mechanisms which i can't remember all of them off the top of my head but yeah that's one thing that i'm playing around with at the moment but it does have uh, i think it's an effect on uh, amp amp kinase and uh, a few other a few other things it's quite hard to explain. It's quite technical. So in terms of the fast, you said that's when you really started seeing the effects. So that would mirror, you know, we had Thomas Seafried on here and he was talking about the importance of the fast. How many days were you doing? Was that a pure water fast? Was it a seven day or five day fast or something like that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think that when these researchers are talking about fasting for brain cancer patients, particularly if they have epilepsy, what they fail to note is that there's ionic changes that are happening in the brain when you're doing these fasts. So patient with epilepsy can't, sh uh, especially if they have brain cancer, in my opinion, shouldn't just do a water only fast. I think that they need to do what I call a magnesium fast. So when I fast, I have my magnesium water uh, solution that I make up myself. And that prevents me from having breakthrough seizures while I'm fasting. Because I have such low, uh, such a low body fat percentage, my longest fast has only been nine days. Uh, I aimed for 10, but I couldn't do more. I've done that a few times, but I need to have my magnesium chloride solution oh, or I okay. instantly have breakthrough seizures. And they're not the, the good kind either. So uh, I found that out the hard way initially, but now it's just the easiest thing that I do. So, so you, are you taking 
Specifically magnesium chloride, you're saying, is that because it's the spray kind or is it actually the magnesium chloride specifically There's something about the chloride, which is helping? It's to do with hydrochloric acid and how you digest it. So I'd say it's more bioavailable. It, and it seems to me to be just in my personal experiences that it it seems to get to the brain very quickly. It, the literature doesn't actually say that, but personally, I found that even though there is not much in the literature about that. Are you buying a specific brand? We've talked about this magnesium using magnesium spray transdermally. I'm just wondering if you're using one of those sprays or how much are you taking of it? It's uh, it's designed to be primarily used transdermally, this, this particular type. And uh, I just get it from a health food shop. It's mainly uh, people who do sports who take it, which is kind of interesting, kind of funny. But uh, I, t- I typically take about five sprays three times a day. So I, I can't remember exactly how much that is. For 10 sprays, it's 150 milligrams of magnesium, definite. So it's variable depending on how mixed up the solution is. But yeah, typically, so typically it would be around, guessing around 200, 230 milligrams in the day that I would take. If you consider our water is too high in calcium and not high enough in magnesium, uh, typically, it's uh, addressing that imbalance that we have. And we know that we should at least have a two to one ratio of magnesium to calcium dietary. Uh, So that addresses that imbalance. And uh, we know that in the mornings after we wake up, magnesium levels are lowest. So that's I primarily take it in the morning after I wake up in the afternoon and before I go to bed. Have you checked your RBC magnesium levels? I haven't because I don't think it's uh, an accurate measure. So I, I just typically just go by how I feel. And sometimes I see the epilepsy as a blessing because everything to do with the epilepsy with brain cancer is is typically very similar to what would work for what would work for treating the cancer. So if something is working for the epilepsy, you've got a pretty good idea that it's beneficial for the cancer. And most of the things that I actually research about, about what helps in terms of my epilepsy, uh, experimentally and otherwise, I've found just incidentally that it has uh, quite potent uh, anti-cancer benefits as well. So it's really interesting in that relationship and uh, it's quite empowering as well. So when I have these quite what I would call as spectacular results, because I still can't believe I'm not having these horrific, absolutely horrific seizures all the time without medication. It's quite empowering to know that that also is potentially having the same kind of benefit on the, on the cancer. So if it's still there at all. Yes, it's it's really amazing your journey. I don't know if you've come into contact with other people with similar stories to tell. I know that some of the people who had cancers, you said, unfortunately, they've passed away, the ones you were relating to. But have you come across any other people who've been experimenting like yourself? Yeah, I actually have a group of friends now who I came into contact with just through seeking out long-term survivors. And I have a group of long-term survivor friends who had glioblastoma many years ago and now have no sign of disease. And I have 
a group of friends with various other cancers who are still here now and they've mostly done the uh, drug cocktail treatment on themselves which uh, is very interesting but personally I, I wanted to try and copy that drug cocktail treatment but you but do it in a natural way just using diet when you say drug cocktail is that chemo or is that more metformin and, and things like that it's more metformin and statins and uh phosphates and um various other and dca and other very interesting drugs but Personally, the only one that I'm considering is metformin and potentially a few others, but mainly metformin and curcumin, uh, which I take in tablet form with DHA because they work synergistically. Curcumin actually increases uptake of DHA to the brain. And because we know that around these tumors or where the tumor was, DHA is very low. We know that uh, if you have curcumin and DHA, that's a, a powerful combination. We know that uh, curcumin is is cytotoxic to the cells, and we know that DHA is, and we know that uh, DHA is also essential for brain functioning. So you really have built up a whole armory against against <laughs> against this. It sounds like you're doing really well. Do you, are you constantly? Just on the curcumin, actually, because there's many forms available on the market today. Are you taking one of one of the bioavailable forms? Like, yeah, so it's got a uh, pepper in in it as well. Okay, if I've pronounced that properly, it's it's a, a component of black pepper. So, yeah, I have a number of strategies that I use, and I'm I'm constantly optimizing my metabolic formula. So. So do you feel constant improvements? I don't know if there's any symptoms because it seems like you've got most of it under control. Uh, do you think you're going to be able to repair your body? Do you feel any signs of that in terms of potentially resolving the epilepsy? Or do you think this is more likely something that you're just going to optimize and maintain so that it never bothers you, so that you never get the actual symptoms? Well, as my brain has been visibly healing at a very fast rate on these scans, while, while I've been utilizing this protocol, I've also found my symptoms have improved with that quite substantially as well. So I had facial paresthesia constantly all throughout the day, every day, and a number of other quite debilitating symptoms. I couldn't even go out and walk a few steps. And and the fatigue was horrendous as well. So being able to do what I am now and uh, just nonstop activity and, uh, yeah, just doing so many different things and uh, having my seizure activity controlled in such a, a great way that's much better than before because even before when I was doing all these things I was still getting more activity and I haven't actually done that many more things if I compare to even just a few months ago so I'm definitely improving in in quite a dramatic way despite having to keep up with all these things so it's it's getting easier to control to the point where i have days now where i have no symptoms at all but if i get overconfident and then i forget to have my magnesium drink or do something uh, that's just out of my routine i definitely have more seizure activity coming back even though it's not to the degree that i used to have yeah, so I guess the audience can really see why you're saying epilepsy is a bit of a bonus for you because it's this early warning detecting detection system for you. Yeah. Whereas 
cancers can creep up on you and you won't know unless you're watching the scans. And even it's the scans aren't showing a, a small progression. So right now you could still have a small amount of cancer left, but you can't see it. So yeah, it, it does seem that it, it is this pretty nice little tool, even though it's not nice to have it in the longer term, it sounds like it's a beneficial thing for you. Yeah, I, I can see it as beneficial now. I couldn't before, but it definitely is. Well, Andrew, this has been an amazing, like it's a very inspiring episode today. I can really say that. I'm certainly going to take some of the things that you've been trying and start testing them out myself. I would like to ask you, where should someone look first if they want to learn more about this topic, if they're facing cancer or epilepsy? Uh, are there good books or presentations on the subject you'd say would should be their first places to go to to start learning themselves about this? Yeah, well, I would thoroughly recommend the book Cancer is a Metabolic Disease by Thomas Seafried. I think that's a great starting point. For anyone starting a ketogenic diet, I would recommend Keto Clarity. I think that's a good, a good resource to use. I would also go to www.ketogenicdietresource.com. Uh, that has answers to just about all the questions you could have. And for help through a dietitian, I would recommend if you live in the UK, I would recommend the charity Matthew's Friends. And in the US, I would recommend the Charlie Foundation, which is the, the sister organization of Matthew's Friends in the UK. And they've recently started to see a lot more. It's mainly brain cancer patients that they see because they get around with that by saying that they're treating the epilepsy. So yeah, I would get in touch with them. I would also go on clinicaltrials.gov to see what clinical trials are happening globally to do with the ketogenic diet and different cancers. Right. So if they just search for ketogenic diet on there? Yeah. If they search for ketogenic diet and cancer, just on clinicaltrials.gov, they can see all of the clinical trials that are currently happening in terms of ketogenic diets yeah for different cancers so uh it's very exciting that more and more of these are popping up and i hope to i have a meeting on thursday to discuss having proper official ketogenic diets using the right approach in this country and that's really exciting a really exciting new development is that with the government the nhs or or some other body that's going to help promote it this is in conjunction with Brain Tumor Research. They're one of the very few cancer charities that actually are really going all at it with this uh, metabolic uh, research. And they're doing that with Imperial College London. So that's really exciting. And that's, it's a small charity that's doing this. So it's, it's quite incredible what they're able to do being such a a small organization. It's great. There's starting to be some, some groundswell, sort of building from the bottom up. Yeah. And I'm going to start up my own individual research with uh, a few of my lecturers at my university because I want to get these things happening much faster than if it's going through a clinical trial protocol. I want to do this myself with lower grade gliomas so that we can see a long-term response to try and shrink these tumors and hopefully because they're not as aggressive but they still are incurable i want to see what effect that we can have on them rather than having to go through all the standard treatment to 
go through clinical trials. And I, I think that's very exciting going forward. That sounds really exciting. And I'm sure like anyone who may be affected, those would be very interested to know more. So what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn about you and keep up with you? So when you're doing these things, they can uh, stay stay up to date on them. Are you on Twitter? You mentioned you had a YouTube channel. Yeah. So my Twitter name is at Ascarbs. So not not carbs, <laughs> at, at Ascarbs. And I'm on Facebook if people want to add me on there, Andrew Scarborough. I also am working on a website at the moment, which is www.metabolictherapy.co.uk. And that has a holding page at the moment, but it should be live shortly. And yeah, I have a YouTube channel, so Andrew Scarborough. And I have a blog, My Brain Cancer Story. That's the title of it. So if people search for Andrew Scarborough and My Brain Cancer Story, they should find it. Excellent. We'll put all those links in the show notes, of course, also. Make sure it's all of that's there. Is there anyone besides yourself you'd recommend to learn more about this topic? You mentioned Thomas Seafried. Is there anyone else that people should look to? Well, I would look at uh, the research by Dominic D'Agostino. Also, I would recommend uh, Dr. Colin Champ. I've had various discussions with him online, which are very interesting. He's very interested in my approach. And he is very unique in that he's a radiation oncologist who is very supportive of this metabolic treatment. Very similar to my oncologist who it's kind of quite a rare thing to find, but um, it's very encouraging. And uh, also there's uh, Dr. Adrienne Scheck, who is who I'm having a meeting with on Thursday. She's uh, coming overseas from the Baroneurological Institute in the US. And uh, she's the one that does the rodent studies using the ketogenic diet. So it's great to be able to discuss it with her. Great, great. Thank you for those. Some quick items on your just a personal approach and what you maybe advise people to get started with. Are you still tracking any biomarkers kind of on a routine basis? Only occasionally with MRI spectroscopy, but we've kind of stopped doing that now just because it looks a bit boring and nothing's really changing. <laughs> it all looks really good. So that's why that's why we're not uh, monitoring it anymore. Right. So maybe once every six months or once a year or something just to yeah, check just in. to keep yeah. an eye on it. But um, everything that you would expect to be elevated that would be a bad thing isn't showing up. So that, that's a, a good uh, it's it sounds like a good thing it's it's very new research so we don't know too much about it but it's very promising for the future because if we can see these things before they show on the scan then it's in terms of enhancement or just showing in an obvious way then it's uh, that can only be good for the patient really then we can intervene in a non-toxic way <laughs> so if you were to recommend one experiment because you know, basically you've done many experiments to get to this point. They're not proven recommendations by doctors and, and, and so on. So what would you recommend that someone does, say, say they have a brain cancer or potentially another cancer, what would you say would be the first thing they should try, the biggest payoff from all of the things you've mentioned? What should their, be, their first step be? I would say that the first step should definitely be reducing carbohydrate intake. Second step would be reducing protein intake to just maintenance levels and therapeutic fasts are very important. But the main thing I would actually say is the omega-3 to 6 ratio. I believe that 
there should be an omega-3 to 6 index, just like with the glucose ketone index, and they should work together, uh, kind of like a, as a synergistic therapy. Because you could even argue that uh, the ratio of omega-3 to 6 is even more important than the ketones. And uh, I, I would also just say the magnesium is, is very important with that too. So those three things, so ketosis, well, therapeutic ketosis, the omega-3 to 6 ratio, and the magnesium, I would say, are very important for brain cancer patients. Great. Thank you. And there's some great takeaways uh, for the people at home. Andrew, I've got to say, this has been a really amazing interview. Uh, it's amazing all the different avenues you've run down and all of these different aspects that you've found uh, to improve your situation. And I know it's going to be an inspiring story for the audience. Thank you very much for being on the show. No problem. We did cover a lot, but uh, we got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> to get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.